bit of a, a proud pastor moment. I, I try not to take pride in much because I'm a really great person like that. But a little bit of a proud pastor moment this morning just in worship. Um, David filled in very last minute. David Jr. jumping in on song. Harry, Thaw, Angel, Dylan, all of you just leading us. And it was just so fantastic. And it's not only that, not I'm sorry, like, you know, going to draw a lot of attention to you. Maybe we could even move the camera on you. It would be awesome. Not only that, but then all of you actually singing along. That was so wonderful to hear. I don't know. Some of you don't know this, but there was a period of time where people didn't really sing in this church. And it was so beautiful to hear you singing. And not singing because you just like to sing, but singing because God invites us through song to worship Him. And so that was a beautiful, for me, it was a beautiful thing this morning. And so thank you uh, to those of you who led us this morning in song, and for which was really all of us, because we kind of joined in on that. So thank you for that. Uh, it is it is one of those things that's always nice as a pastor to kind of have a, a moment like that in the morning. So I was very pleased with that. So thank you for it. Uh, some things you don't know about me, though, uh, is that I'm not, there are some things I'm not good at. Like, I, I know most of you think I'm good at everything, because I'm just so amazing, but there are some things I'm just really not good at. Like, I could not have led in worship this morning, and so I'm very thankful for the wonderful volunteers uh, and friends we have here at the church who do that. Uh, but there are other things I'm not good at either, and, you know, maybe mechanical work. You don't want me working on your car. Don't don't ask me to. I mean, you could ask me to. It just would cost you more in the long run. But there are some things that I am good at. And I think that's all of us, right? We have some things we're not so good at. We have some things that we are good at. And one of the things I'm actually pretty good at is talking. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's not that I enjoy it necessarily, but I'm actually pretty good at just kind of having a conversation with people. And and especially when it comes to things like small talk. I don't know how many of you enjoy small talk. I personally don't, but I'm good at talking to you about the weather and sports. Some of you know this because that's what we talk about. And it's it's riveting, isn't it? Like the weather is just such a beautiful thing and sports, they're just sports. It's just fantastic. And I'm also sometimes good at talking about TV shows, but some of you know I am completely out of touch with popular culture, so I'm also not so good at that at times. But one of the things I do struggle with is that while I'm good at small talk and while I'm good at having conversations about things that, you know, in the long run, they don't really change our day, but, you know, at least we get talking. I'm good at that, but I'm not always so good at transitioning from, like, small talk to what we'll say is, like, big talk, like the big questions of life. So sometimes, sometimes this happens, and, you know, we have a conversation, and you want to talk about big talk, so you come to talk to me, and we're talking, and I know you want to talk about big talk, and I want to talk about big talk, because big talk is way more fun for me, but we just talk about small talk for like half an hour, and then it's like, okay, we're kind of done this conversation, and then there's big talk, right? And it's like, so I've worked on that transition. I've worked on it for years. I've gotten a little bit better at it. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's not so graceful. And so you're gracious with me that I can jump into those big conversations. But one of the ways that I've tried to work on things, not just this, but other things I'm not so good at, is to learn from the example of others. To watch how other people do things, how other people uh, interact, how other people are in their daily life, and go, okay, like, what can I learn from them? And for me personally, because I am a Christian, I follow Jesus, I often look to Jesus in that way. I often look to Jesus to go, okay, well, Jesus, what can I learn from you 
about being human. He is fully human. So what, is, what did Jesus do as a human? And so I often look to Scripture, look to the Gospels, and try to get an understanding of, like, how did Jesus do certain things that all of us do in everyday life, and what can I learn and how can I improve because I get to know Jesus? And this morning, I want to look at one of the conversations Jesus has dealing with small talk and how he dealt with it. Because there's a lot I think we can learn, not just about the small talk conversations we have, but about the importance of big talk and getting to it. That sometimes like, it's great to have a conversation about sports, especially if you cheer for the right team or they're winning or something like that. But there are more important things in life. And so how do we get to those conversations with each other? How do we start having those conversations? And sometimes it starts with small talk. But how do we get to big talk? And I think Jesus shows us this example in John's gospel. Now, if you've been with us for a few weeks, whether you've watched online, like some of you are this morning, or you've been here in person, uh, which is wonderful, uh, we've been going through some of the stories in the early parts of John's gospel in this Come and See series. And we get to this part of the story. So we've had a variety of things that have happened. John kind of gives his, his prologue about who Jesus is and why it matters. We've seen how Jesus has worked miracles. He's changed water into wine. We've seen Jesus get upset last week and angry at injustice and religiosity, and he cleared out the temple. And then we get to this chapter 3. And chapter 3 is a little bit of a pivot moment in the story. So you've got the first two chapters, and times move pretty quick, and a lot of things have happened, and probably a lot of things that we don't know about have happened. And we get to chapter 3, and we're going to get introduced to a new character, a new protagonist. And this protagonist, I think we need to look at, because he comes up three times in John's Gospel. And there's a progression in his life that we can learn a lot from about who we are, as well as who Jesus is. And so some of you will be familiar with this character, some of you are familiar with this story, and for others it might be a newer story for us. Either way, I want us to look at this character, Nicodemus, and Jesus, and see how Jesus addresses what really matters, and see how Nicodemus maybe struggles with it a little. Because Nicodemus is probably a lot like some of us. Someone who has some questions, someone who's a little bit skeptical, someone who's a little unsure And in many ways, he's kind of checking out what Jesus is all about. And let's see, for those of us maybe who have already checked out what Jesus is all about, how Jesus interacts with someone like that. And also what Jesus actually says really matters. Because maybe, maybe even though we are following Jesus, maybe we've missed something along the way. So John chapter 1, verse 1, starts like this. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So Nicodemus, we're introduced to him. What do we know about Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. What do we know about Pharisees? Uh, my hope is that you can remember something I've said before. Uh, if you, you know, have only heard me speak and never been to church before, never read your Bibles before, but I'm hoping that some of us would also know that Pharisees come up over and over again in Scripture. And they're really like these individuals who are very uh, zealous about the law. They're very excited about the rules and regulations of religion. And they impose those rules and regulations on everybody around them, saying, this is how 
you follow God. And so they are very zealous about it, and they're enforcing it often. So that is the general sense of a Pharisee. Then the specific sense of who Nicodemus is, well, he's not just a Pharisee, he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's part of like what we would call here the leadership team, or in some churches it would be the elders or the deacons. And so he's one of the leaders of this religious group, meaning he's someone who helps direct the group in their decision-making, the decisions they make on how to be a good Pharisee or how to be a good Jew, essentially. So he would be part of the group who probably said it was okay to sell animals in the temple courts. And if you remember the story just before, Jesus got a little upset about that. He said, this is wrong. And the Father's house is a house of prayer, and this injustice is wrong. So he would be part of the group that either said it was okay or just ignored that it was happening. Sometimes that happens, right? Sometimes in leadership, you just kind of ignore stuff that's happening because you're like, I don't know how to deal with it. Maybe that was it. Either way, this is who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is a well-educated Jewish man who partakes in the Pharisee way of life and is also a leader in his community. So people would look up to him and look to him for understanding about who God is and why that all matters. This is Nicodemus. And the text continues. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. He comes to Jesus at night and pays him a wonderful compliment. It's like after the service, you're going to come to me, Rob, that was the best sermon ever. You are the best preacher ever. I know you think that right now, but just wait till the end, okay? Right? And you come and you pay a compliment. And, and it's well-meaning, it's sincere, but it's also small talk, right? It's, it's small talk. It's like, hey, let's introduce conversing together. I'll pay you a compliment. That's what Nicodemus is doing. And the text tells us he came in at night. And now there's no indication as to why exactly he came at, at night. We can hypothesize about it. I mean, there's a couple of possible scenarios. One is that he knows there's already tension between the Pharisees and Jesus, so he doesn't want other people to know he's going at night. It's very possible. You know, so he's trying to sneakily go and check out what Jesus is all about and says, hey, I've heard about you. I I know you're a good teacher. People have seen your signs, that whole water to wine thing. Really cool. Way to go, Jesus. Or, or it could be that He's also been following Jesus, and he knows that during the day, Jesus is pretty busy. And he really wanted time with him. And so he was coming at night, going, okay, this is my opportunity to maybe interact and connect with Jesus, because he's so busy. You know, he is turning water to wine. He is, later on, going to be feeding people. He's going to be healing people. He's going to be doing teaching. So maybe this is my opportunity. So he comes in at night. Now, if I am Jesus, and I am nowhere near as good as Jesus, that's for sure, If you come to me at night, that's really not a good time. In fact, phone goes on do not disturb at 10 p.m. Because sometimes I'm tired. I would imagine at this point, if it's at night, Jesus has probably had a long day. Jesus is probably a little tired. This is just my imagination. And if Jesus is anything like me, or if I'm anything like Jesus... 
probably when you're tired, the last thing you really want to do is just go through the motions of small talk. Of, yeah, okay, thank you. Thank you for the compliment. How's the weather? All those things. So then Jesus does what Jesus does, which I so admire. Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him at night, and he says, Hey, Jesus, you are awesome. And so Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. And your immediate thought is, where do you get that from at this hour? Like, it's like, boom, let's have a real conversation. No time for small talk. There are more important things to talk about. Nicodemus comes to him at night and says this wonderful compliment, saying, we've heard so many great things. You're teaching. It's wonderful. We know you're from God. We've seen the signs. And Jesus says, you know what? You can't see what God is doing unless you're born again. That's what he's saying. You can't see the kingdom of God. So not just the future hope of what will be, but what God is doing right now, you cannot see it unless you are born again. A simple one-sentence statement pivots the conversation. I have so much to learn from Jesus. While Nicodemus comes in and tries to pay compliments, who knows what his initial intention was, For Jesus, it didn't matter. Jesus knew there was something more important to talk about. This man who's a religious leader, this man who is looked upon as someone who would teach others, this man who is someone who governs, who leads other people, Jesus doesn't have time for small talk, especially at night. He says, very truly, meaning really listen, no one, can see what God is doing. No one can see the kingdom of God, where God is king, where God is reigning, both on earth and to come, unless they are born again. To which Nicodemus replies, How can someone be born when they are old? Surely you cannot enter a second time into your mother's womb to be born, which is a very logical statement. Very logical. But also a little silly. Right? Nicodemus is a very educated man. To be a Pharisee, you have to be educated. Not just educated in the religious sense, like he you know, went to Torah school and all those things, but he was educated in the life of being human. And so he would know how babies work. He would know where babies come from. I mean, let's be honest, most of us do. We're not going to get into the biology right now. And he would know that as someone who was born once, just like you and I, you had very little to nothing to do with the fact that you were born. That wasn't your choice. And so when Jesus comes to him and says, hey, you are going to be born again if you want to see what God is doing, his response is, well, that makes no sense because I know how biology works. As Jesus tries to pivot the conversation to something very important, very real, very serious, he tries to avoid it a little. He tries to divert it. It could be he genuinely was confused by the statement, which is very possible. We can read it that way. Or it could be it made him a little bit uncomfortable. You know, he just wanted to check things out. Why did it get so serious all of a sudden? Maybe you felt like that before. Maybe you've you've come to church before and you're kind of like, I'm checking it out. And then all of a sudden... Somebody has a conversation with you. You're like, that's a little too much. 
Or you go to one of those churches where Julie and Mitch and I were talking about this weekend, where you have to turn and talk to your neighbor and have a greeting time. And you're like, hey, I don't like that. We stopped that for a reason, because I know some of you don't like it. I know some of us love it. I know, but you can talk to people at coffee time. Right? You go, wow, that got a little too serious. And that's a little bit like what it's like in this moment with Nicodemus. He's like, whoa, Jesus, slow down. I just said you were great. Let's ease into this conversation a little. Jesus answers them. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter. So the first time he says no one can see the kingdom of God. Now he says no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus responds to him and says, remember how I said you could only see what God is doing if you're born again? Well, you can't enter into what God is doing unless you're born again. And you know how human births happen. But what we're talking about is something bigger and better. That who you've always been, who you've always said you are, is not really who you are. Because when you're born again, God does something new in you. God invites you into life in all of its fullness. And that in Jesus, you enter into this reality That isn't, well, this is the way I've always been. This is who I am. I can never change. It's God's already changed me. I'm born again. Jesus, in conversation with Nicodemus, says, hey, you shouldn't be surprised about this. You know, this is what you should know. God changes us. And he continues, Nicodemus, he says, well, how can this be? He says, you are Israel's teacher. And you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people will not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe it if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever come into heaven except the one who came from heaven the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus speaking to this Pharisee who's come at night, maybe there's a bit of skepticism in visiting, maybe there's a curiosity in visiting, maybe there's an uncertainty of who's going to see him. He comes in at night and says, a wonderful compliment to Jesus. And Jesus says, you need to be born again if you want to see what God is up to. If you want to be part of what God is up to, you need to be born again. And he says, I don't get it. How does that work? And he says, well, let me tell you, because you should know this. He says, just like Moses. So he's appealing back to what he knows. As a Pharisee, he would know the story in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 21, Moses and the Israelites are in the desert. And what happens in the desert stays in the desert, sort of. So they're in the desert, and they're grumbling, because they do that all the time. They're kind of just like everybody else. 
Things aren't going the way they want them to. They're cursing God because God's not providing the way they want him to. And then the snakes come. And the text says that God actually sent the venomous snakes. And the snakes bite and kill people. And then they go, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. We need God again. Because that's basically the story of the Old Testament. This happens over and over and over again. And God says to Moses, okay, this is how you're going to save your people. You're going to fashion a bronze snake on a staff. And you are going to hold that snake up. And anyone who looks up to that snake will be healed from the poison. And Jesus says, you know what? That's me. I'm just like that snake. To be born again, we have to look to Jesus. So just as God provided opportunity for rescue for the Israelites in Egypt, as they were going to where God had promised them, as they had forgot where God had promised them and what God had promised them, as they were grumbling, thinking they could do better than what God had for them, and as they suffered through it, God provided hope and healing and life and said, look to what provides it. Imagery similar to what we have for modern medicine, though modern medicine would say that this is a symbol that comes from Greek mythology. This is about a thousand years before the story that Greek mythology is associated with. God provided something for the people to look to, a bronze snake on a staff, to give healing. It wasn't the snake that healed them, it was God. But they had to act faithfully and look to what God was providing them. And Jesus says, that is what you need, Nicodemus. And that's me. That he is the one to bring hope, healing, and salvation. That he, even though Nicodemus is well-educated, knows all the rules, technically probably does all the right things in his mind, he's not okay. He's still broken. And he needs to look up and see, just like the Israelites did in the wilderness, look to see the cross, Jesus. Nicodemus, by all understanding of the text, had it all together. He was a religious leader, probably was fairly wealthy to be this person. He probably had everything he needed in life. He could provide for himself. He could, if he had a family, he could provide for his family. He probably didn't have to worry about much. People would look to him for guidance and leadership. And Jesus still says, guess what? It's not enough. You're still not whole. You need to be born again. If you want to see what God has for you, you need to be born again. And just like Nicodemus, we who maybe feel like we've got it all together, whether we've got a good paying job, whether we've got a good education, we've got all the stuff we need, we can easily think, oh, we don't need much more, maybe just a better job or a better car. We don't need Jesus. And Jesus says, guess what? You're still not whole. And I can guarantee you, even as you probably are processing through this and you're thinking, you know what? I don't think I do need Jesus because I have everything I ever dreamed of. I have the ideal family. I have whatever. I have money. I have jobs. I have education. I can almost guarantee you that there's been moments in your life where it wasn't enough. You might be feeling like, I'm satisfied right now, but I can guarantee you there are moments in your life where you were craving for something more. And you thought, if I just had this, I would be okay. If I just had a raise at work, if my boss just acknowledged how great I am, I'd be great. 
if I just had the relationship I so desire and not my spouse or not my girlfriend or boyfriend. If I just had more education, if I just, if I just, if I just, and we keep looking to these things to save us. Just as Nicodemus would probably have been saying, I've got all I need, we look to things and go, actually, we don't have all we need. No matter how much we may feel it at times, like we don't need Jesus, guess what? You do. None of us are whole. And yet we try to fill it with those jobs. We try to fill it with those relations. We try to fill it with money. We try to fill it with power. We try to fill it with food. We try to fill it with addictions. Because we think, if I just have a little more, I'll feel okay. And Jesus' words to us are the same as to Nicodemus. You need to be born again. Just as we sang, it's in Christ alone that we can find fullness and healing and hope. It's in Christ alone that we can find anything more than what we experience all around us every day in sadness and sorrow and destruction. But we're not always looking to Christ. So where are you looking for salvation? Where are you looking to fill those voids in your life? For Nicodemus, there was a curiosity that led him to Jesus to explore, well, what is it that's missing? Whether he knew the real questions he was going to have to deal with, or whether he just showed up because he knew there was something. Where are you looking to fill those voids? Are you looking in your relationships? Are you looking in your work? Are you looking in your education, in your job, in your money? Where are you looking for salvation, to be made whole? Because the truth is, your religion doesn't save you. Just like Nicodemus, who had the right religion, he had all the right answers to the rights and wrongs of what to do, he had to be born again. You may say, well, I am a Christian, I follow Jesus, but that's not what saves you. It's Jesus who saves you. So you may have all the religion, you may have all the right answers, you may have all the right practices, and you may think, I've got it all made. I don't need anything more. But you do. You need one thing above all else, and that's Jesus. And it's not going to be your volunteering that saves you either. You may give all of your time and energy to wonderful causes and think, if I just do some more, I will feel better about myself. And the truth is, you will feel a little better about yourself, but that's not going to save you. That's not going to fix the wrongs that are realities in us. It will not fix the ultimate longing in our hearts. It is good to volunteer, and we appreciate you who volunteer here and beyond because it's an important part of who you are. But it's not the volunteering that saves you. And it's not the giving that saves you. We are so grateful for you to choose to give at Bromley because you believe that this is where God's called you to and you choose to trust God with your finances here. But giving doesn't save you. You could give it all away and it won't save you. It won't fix what's missing. And you may think, well, I'm not going to give then. That won't save you either. You give because you have joy in giving and you trust God in it. But giving doesn't save you. 
And in, in fact, your attendance here on Sunday doesn't save you. I mean, I love seeing you, and I'm so glad to see you. And when you're not here, i got to tell you, I am sad. I do notice. But that's not going to save you. You could be here seven days a week, and that's not going to save you. Showing up to church doesn't save you. And your education doesn't save you. You could know everything there is to know. Nicodemus was incredibly educated for that time in his life in the world. You could be the most educated person here, and it's not going to save you. You may feel like, if I just know a little bit more, I'll feel better about myself. But it's not going to save you. It's not going to fix the real problems that exist. Education is great, and you should be educated. You should learn. doesn't mean it has to be in a school. It's just learning is good. But it doesn't save you. Only Jesus saves you. Just as Moses had to hold up the staff for the people to look to, it is only when we can truly look to Jesus that we can find salvation. It is only when we truly look to Jesus and recognize his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins and so that we can experience that kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about, what God is doing around us and what he's inviting us into in eternity. It's only then we can be saved. None of anything will fix the problems. Nothing fixes the problems. If those Israels would not look at that staff that Moses held up, they would still die from poison. You can live life without looking to Jesus, but you will still die. But with Jesus, you can step into eternity. But not only that, you can see and experience the kingdom of God here and now, the goodness that God has for us in our life. You can experience what Jesus calls in John's gospel, life in all of its fullness. But it's only with Jesus. Only Jesus saves us. We could strive and we could try and we could try to do everything we think is right, but nothing will save you except for Jesus. For some of us, we're just like Nicodemus. We're not sure where we stand, what we believe, and maybe we're checking it out. We're checking out Jesus. And we're ready for the small talk, but the truth is Jesus wants to have a big talk with us. He wants us to say, hey, you need to be born again. And for some of us, we might even say, well, I've been following Jesus for a long time. I've been to church for like 50 years, 60 years. You still need to look to Jesus because it's only him that saves. And maybe you need to be reminded of it. Because for a lot of us, we don't actually look to Jesus. We look to what people say about Jesus. So whether you come to church and you listen to me talk, or you listen to podcasts, you read articles, you read books, whatever it might be, your devotionals, you're not actually looking to Jesus. You're looking to what people say about Jesus. And all Jesus is saying is, you have to look to me to be saved. Coming to church isn't going to save you. Being baptized isn't going to save you. Giving your donations isn't going to save you. Volunteering isn't going to save you. Only Jesus will save you. Only Jesus can make you whole. This morning, we get to reflect on that. And we get to reflect on what Jesus did through his death and resurrection through the communion table.
As I mentioned, Nicodemus' story comes up throughout. Nicodemus, we hear in chapter 3, this story of he's a skeptic, he's searching, he's trying to figure out what Jesus is all about. We jump to chapter 9 in John's Gospel, and here we see Nicodemus defending Jesus, where people are saying, hey, we need to get rid of this Jesus. And he says, actually, maybe we should hear what he has to say before we make a judgment. And then we jump way ahead to after Jesus' death in John 19. In John 19, Jesus has died, and they go to take his body away. And who shows up but Nicodemus? And he shows up with 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh. You know who gets 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh? A king. Nicodemus moves from the skeptic to the inquisitive defender to the worshiper because he recognized who Jesus was. And in many ways, we are moving in that same pattern. We were exploring in the skeptic going, what's this all about? But Jesus invites us to look to him, not to what everybody says about him, and recognize that he is that king of the kingdom we hope for. He is the one who saves. For those of us who know it, we come to the table. We come to the table like Nicodemus could, and we reflect and we remember that it is only Jesus who saves. And so as I invite the band and those who serve communion, I invite you too to reflect, is this table for you? This table's for everyone, but maybe you haven't seen Jesus yet. Maybe you don't know that he saved you. If that's the case, you can stay where you are. You don't have to come up to have communion. But for those of us who know who Jesus is, who look to Jesus, we recognize that it is Jesus who saves, not communion that saves, not church attendance that saves. That this table is a reflection done for us. And when we come, it's an act of worship saying, Jesus, you died and you rose again for us. And nothing that you've done stopped him from doing it. And nothing that you've done prevents you from being worthy to participate in it. But you have to look to him first. I'm going to pray as we transition to communion. God, I thank you that you are uh, the one who invites us to look to you in Jesus. That you are the one who saves. That you invite us to this table not as an act of religiosity but as a reflection as a statement of what you've done. And as we reflect to see who you are in our lives. Help us to remind ourselves that you will saves. Help us to look to you for salvation. That it is you alone. Nothing we've done, nothing we'll do. But you alone who invites us to be born again and to come to this table. I pray this in Jesus' name.